Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Thursday, like it's always been, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's inspiring inspiring and provoking us lately, on Thursdays, as it always has done. <laughs> Gathered around the table this Thursday, we've got Patrick Klepek. Was this like on the ballot? Like, oh, we're moving yeah. Waypoint to Thursdays. Like, it passed! I don't know. There were some Kemp-like shenanigans around <laughs> scheduling of Waypoints, I have to say. Oh. There was uh, there was sort of a conflation of roles and a, a unitary executive. You know, uh, that uh, there is something to be said about uh, executive orders. Uh, they give you a lot of flexibility in a way that trying to pass something democratically sometimes can't. But as long as the checks are in place, you know, uh, the executive order can be can be brought down. If you go to the judiciary, you know, it, it'll, it would, there, a halt would come to pass. Now, I don't know who the judge is in this scenario. Maybe it's <laughs> CL, my boss. Like, I don't know. I don't really know how it works. If y'all, like, went over my head, I you know. But um, we really wanted to make sure that there was enough time for us to dig into stuff without – by we, I mean me, Austin. I decided this, but we talked about it. Um <laughs> To make sure that we could dig into this. Okay, here's what happened. It, so here, so, Okay, so what happened was uh, it was like 11.30 p.m. and I was watching Channel Zero, which will be on our now on our next episode because of scheduling conflict. Um, and I had also just finished reading this like 8,000-word Gingrich piece, and I was in the middle of this 10,000-word piece on the New York – over the New York Times on white supremacy and – uh, and the cops, and I was like, yo, I can't do this at 11.30 p.m., and I didn't have a chance to, to... – this was on Monday night because we were trying to record on Tuesdays. And I was like, we need a day that is just the prep day for games and for waypoints so that we can, like, actually hit that. But that means that we can't – I don't want to record on Wednesday morning and then give that to Kato and be like, all right, quick, turn this around. Because we already have one of those on Mondays. And so I want to make sure Kato's plate is not overflowing, and so – well, we push it to Thursday. It's not as cute as Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You know, Monday, Thursday, Friday is is a little less uh, on the nose. But, but you know, we maybe got podcasts for all days. We we really kind of do at this point. We could fill we could fill every day with podcast material at this point. We certainly fill people's ears. I think from from Sunday to fr- uh, Sunday to Saturday, Sunday Sunday to Friday. Not on Saturdays though. We take a break. Um, so thank you for for to both of you and, and to the whole Waypoint crew for for humoring my my uh, decision to shift things around here. Well, you know, it was for Kato. Shout out always shout out to Kato. <laughs> I was going to give it up to our producer Kato. Uh, that was the voice of Austin Walker. Uh, and today we're going to be diving into a whole bunch of topics, but I think we've got an interesting point of departure this week, courtesy of Patrick, uh, who in the week leading up to this election, 
suggested we all read this article by McCake Hoppins over at The Atlantic called The Man Who Broke Politics. And that could be a lot of people, but <laughs> McCake Hoppins has a very particular person in mind. Yeah, it's a profile of uh, Newt Gingrich who, I mean, if you are of a certain age, it, you may just think of Newt Gingrich as this blowhard on Fox News that was an early sort of supporter of Trump and like, oh, he's just an old white guy. So he's been in Republican politics for a while. And if I technically grew up in the Clinton era, but like I did not process the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Like I don't even remember having my parents having like a conversation with me about it. I think it just kind of like went in. It was just, I remember Clinton played the saxophone on like a late night show. Like that's like my memory of the Clinton years. Um, And so like what this profile does is like break down, try to, Look like in the era we're in with Trump, like where where did this all start to go wrong? Not that politics hasn't been broken and flawed and fucked up in all sorts of ways for time immemorial, but like this specific brand of like Trumponian politics, like the name calling, in which you actually have like more or less no ideology and it's just about winning at all costs using the tools in front of you. Um, this profile like paints like a really convincing argument that. It doesn't even have to paint it because, like, Newt Gingrich has this whole ass out there for, like, the the, the majority of it. Um, and and it, it kind of has, brings you through the history of Newt Gingrich in which he came in immediately into Congress as a bomb thrower. Like, there's this really um, revealing quote. Uh, da, da, da. Oh, I don't think I pulled it up. Where? Nice. Are you talking about that address he gave to young Republicans uh, shortly before yes. he entered Congress? Uh, so, so I'll just yeah, I'll just read this little passage that kind of like sets up uh, Gingrich. Uh, so on June 24th, 1978, Gingrich stood uh, to address a gathering of college Republicans at a Holiday Inn near the Atlanta airport. It was a natural audience for him. At 35, he was more youthful looking than the average congressional candidate with fashionably robust sideburns and a cool professor charisma that had made him one of the more popular faculty members at West Georgia College. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But but Gingrich had uh, not come to deliver an academic lecture to the young activists before him. He had come to foment revolution. Quote, one of the great problems we have in the Republican Party is that we don't encourage you to be nasty, he told the group. We encourage you to be neat, obedient, and loyal, and faithful. And all those Boy Scout words, which would be great around the campfire, but are lousy in politics. For their party to succeed, Gingrich went on, the next generation of Republicans would have to learn to, quote, raise hell, to stop being so, quote, nice, to realize that politics was, above all, a cutthroat, quote, war for power, and start acting like it. And so to, just to sort of set the broader sort of foundation of, like, where Gingrich enters politics is, like, post-Watergate in which, like, the Republicans have just been, like, had often been a minority power in Congress. Like, it's weird to think, like, now we're so used to, like, wave elections where, think like, power shifts back and forth, but for, like, long eras in uh, in politics, it was mostly just the presidency changed and the Democrats largely controlled, like, uh, the levers of Congress. Um, but the, the Republicans really got wiped out um, after after Watergate. And this is Gingrich trying to identify a path uh, back into power for the Republicans. It is more than just something – he puts it essentially like just like uh, settling for being the minority, and that's just the, the future, is, is, is trying to bring left legislation a little bit to the right, but just understanding you're always – uh, going to lose so um yeah i don't know. i found this profile to be like extremely bleak very convincing uh also like just a sign of like really well written like i like the pieces where the author like pokes their head up and just kind of like calls bullshit on what gingrich is saying instead of like always just like weaving together the history and and their own sort of like observations of what they're seeing in front of them um 
But I think it does make uh, a convincing argument for uh, Gingrich being largely responsible for maybe something that was naturally going to happen, but he certainly accelerated it in a way that Trump also accelerated things by the time he came around. I think it's worth thinking about. So, so I think I have some like issues with this piece, but I think that identifying Gingrich as a as a pivot point for the Republican Party, but also for American politics in general, is really important. Um, it's it's it is important to see the ways in which Gingrich did not. I think a lot of times we talk about politics, we talk about history as if it unfolds without actors in it, or we talk about it as if it is just great minds clashing and and you know brilliant ideas coming the marketplace of ideas and and the the, the kind of like uh, stagemanship of it all. What what I think gets discarded is that um, often there can be a sort of groundswell organic. Uh, interplay of different positions and different strategies that is also something that is heavily researched that is uh, that that things like think tanks uh, and white papers help push and that people like Gingrich have um, I would say an outsized influence in when they produce kind of playbooks for an entire generation or two or three uh, of their peers. Um, and so looking at Gingrich specifically, um, looking at something like the, there's the the memo, the the language, a key yeah. mechanism of control, which outlines, like, it's so important to understand this, that like Gingrich is someone who comes out of an academic space and then who create, using his academic knowledge and his way of understanding language and rhetoric, creates a playbook that identifies specific terminology that simply was not used in most American politics when referring to the 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 uh, the opponents in the chamber, right? The, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that that politicians never used words like shallow or traitors or sick before. That is not. They, of it's course, the, it's, they the, it's the strategic use of the words and, and like the, the the tactics behind them, as opposed to like the fact that they were if they were used or not used. Exactly, exactly. Well, like previously you would use that on an international stage. You would use that behind closed doors. You would often use that to marginalize, about marginalized groups in your, in your sometimes even in, in your own constituency. Um, but you wouldn't use it on the Democrat across the, across the aisle, right? You would save it there. And so the deployment of that actually really meaningfully shifts the way politics work. And then, and then specifically, uh, it, it changes the relationship with media. The other super important thing to understand about Gingrich, for me at least, and I think this hits on it to some degree, but it doesn't get into the specifics, um, is that Gingrich understood media and understood um, uh, technology in a way that many of his peers did not. Uh, I think a lot of this comes up in the, the framing of him as being youthful and especially with him understanding the, the advent of the of C-SPAN, the advent of like always on. What's the, there's like, some, there's this one tiny detail about like some like hair thing that like him and the group he comes in with that were, oh yeah, it was something basically the, for, the uh, like blow dried uh, hair compared to the like more crew cutty, like the comb overs yeah. of their peers yeah. of their, of the previous generation. Well, and so the thing about Gingrich is like, he's actually the protege of this futurist who previously had been like an outright socialist, um, this guy Alvin Toffler, who was a media theorist who predicted the third wave of media technologies uh, in terms of like always on connectivity, was someone who was like, oh yeah, in the future we're always going to be facing cameras, we're always going to be online in, in this way that no one knew what that meant yet. Um, and Gingrich was such a, a keen student of that, that it's 
it's I think it is worth giving him some credit in shaping the way not just like the vitriolic tone of politics I, I'm less interested in that because vitriol vitriol in politics is something that happens inter internationally and across the course of time on again off again but what he did fully understand in a way that a few other American politicians understood in the past was the importance of of uh, not the importance of it, like was a sort of media savvy real pol real politic, right? He isn't out there trying to win minds with specific policies. He's out there trying to win minds however he can. Uh, it's just winning. It's just winning. Period. For the sake of winning, winning is not exactly. Winning and any and any any uh, ideology you're pushing along the way is only in service of the winning. It's not in service of like an agenda that he has any like this is one thing I wish the piece pushed on more was like pushed on that point of like, you have no ideology. You actually don't believe in making things better for anyone. I mean, it touches on it in the sense that it, it underscores that when the Gingrich revolution happens in 1994, uh, that they pass a bunch of bills, but don't actually negotiate them to get through the Senate or the president and like, or, or veto. So it like touches on the idea that this is all empty rhetoric which does carry over in a very Trump uh, sort of Trump fashion, but it doesn't needle him enough. Like it, this person had a whole day to spend with this character, and does not needle him nearly enough on the fact that like, you actually don't fucking believe in anything, because like, it's so key to the strategy, right? Like it is so key to like the, the piece opens smartly, like you know, dragging you know uh, uh, Gingrich's whole understanding of politics in terms of like nature. Yeah. Um, in terms I of, I wish you went harder on that and, too, but yeah, yes, um, yeah, you have to do a little more of, of your own lifting uh, on this stuff. Like the, the author does not press on that stuff hard enough, but uh, yeah, that that was a really frustrating point because it's like key to understanding Gingrich that he actually doesn't believe in anything. But I have some sympathy for not for having difficulty pushing on this stuff because like pushing on putty, like it's all like there are no real like bedrock beliefs here. It is right. all like this nebulous, unfocused, uh, like pseudo-nationalist, pseudo, uh, I guess, what's the wrong way to put this? Uh, Western chauvinist id uh, that, that Gingrich embodies. And I think one of the things that really comes across here is like, if, like, I think his answer when he's pressed on like, what, what are you fighting for? What, what do you believe? It's this vague idea of Western civilization, of... Uh, of of for him the light of of Western civilization, but he doesn't know very much about Western civilization. Like he's not an impressive academic. His understanding of a lot of the things that give him historical backing, uh, much like Steve Bannon, is childish and incredibly naive. Like there's that detail about him telling the story again and again about how he goes to the uh, Verdun. <laughs> His creation myth. His origin story? Yeah, and like, it's a it's an incredibly fucked up thing to pull from that monument. Um, that, you know, this is, countries can die. And it's like, well, no, like, the whole point there is that France didn't die, right? Like, the, like this is where a country bled out so that it could live, so that its democracy and its sense of self could, could be preserved. Uh, and his view of this is to adopt this gloomy uh, end of days worldview, not just about America, but like on the future of the West. And it's based on this really like strange interpretation and reading of something he encountered as a child. And that sort of ties in again. And this is where I think he does actually become not necessarily more. He becomes more of a symptom 
than a driver of a lot of these phenomenons. He is, I think, one of the earlier uh, salespeople for a brand of like white reactionary that we see increasingly these days, which is somebody who presents themselves as uh, the defender of enlightenment ideals, the defender of the West, of, of a great cultural legacy, but has no real understanding what any of those legacies are, what the ideals they are defending. What it is meant to do is provide some high-minded gilding and some illusion of like erudition and uh, value to what basically amounts to a really pure and destructive like will for power. And ethno-nationalist daydreams right and like mm -hmm. and like it'd be cool if i could live in rome um two <laughs> things one I mean, like which is serious right because yeah. at the at the bottom of it is he likes going to the zoo and he likes that he can live in rome and eat good good meals there like i would do not discount that as a motivation uh because it is there so two things one i think that the author of this piece could have pushed back harder not if not in interview in follow-up uh and in uh, outlining what act, what the actions and inactions uh, of Gingrich specifically cost people. What did he obstruct? What did he fail to to push through? Um, what are the specific actions of his term, uh, and and how do they relate to specific material people on the ground? Because you can talk about obstructionism. You can talk about uh, what what his goals were. And, and what he tried to pass or what he failed to pass or what he stopped from passing. But you need to actually like conceptualize that for the reader in the lives of humans who were alive at that time because otherwise it is just stagecraft, right? Well, the author gives themselves an they, – they articulate the out and then also take the out in a, in, in a specific passage where um, – uh, they write, uh, one of the hard things about talking with Gingrich is that he weaves partisan attack lines into casual conversations so matter-of-factly and so frequently that after a while they begin to take on a white noise quality. He will say something like, quote, I mean, the party of socialism and anti-Semitism is probably not very desirable as a governing party, and you, uh, quote, end quote, and you won't bother challenging him or fact-checking him or arching an eyebrow. In fact, you might not even notice. His smarter-than-thou persona seems so impenetrable, his mind so unchangeable, that after a while you just give up on anything approaching a regular human conversation. Which is like a funny and bold and true observation, but also they end up taking that out, which is that, well, you can't you can't pin him down on anything, so why bother pressing him on anything? And I think that to tie this into games a little bit, like this is something that, I, you know, in my piece about um, the Vulture article about Red Dead Redemption, in which I was critical of the reporter... And, and the framing they used around labor was that even if you didn't have an opportunity, if you thought you weren't going to get a real answer about labor from the, the person you are interviewing, it is still then uh, incumbent on you as the reporter to provide that context after the fact in, in, the, in the, the broader reporting that you're doing for the piece. And, like, that's something that you're asking for, Austin, and that does not happen here. Like, the consequences of his action and inaction aren't really – I don't know. Like, a lot of his piece, like, it's true that, like, the destruction of norms is, is – is is a bad thing and ha has consequences but the actual like how did this affect like the people society like the, the policies i mean that... there are even moments where he says like there were real accomplishments during gingrich's speakership too a tax cut a bipartisan health care deal even a balanced federal budget for a time truly historic triumphs seemed within reach but there's no description of what those specific policies were or why they were real accomplishments what does that even mean health care or is it just like because health care sounds impressive like right <laughs> like that's not a real passing a thing is not a real or or there was a time when we were so naive as to think yes i have a, a list of things that 
I passed is enough to call it a, an accomplishment for uh, a, a public figure, for, for a politician. But like in 2018, and, and certainly even before that, we should know better than simply looking at the resume and seeing a number of bullet points and equating. Oh, so it's like when you're uh, when you've only had like one job as a teenager and you got to pad out your resume with some bullshit because you can't you can't just have that PDF just be like one thing. It's got to be like, oh, I was a babysitter too, which taught me leadership. Right. But I wanted to get back to Rob's point, which is this question of like, is Gingrich a symptom or 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 is is he the infection, right? Or or I guess more specifically, is he a front runner? Is he something that that brings us into place, or is he the latest in the line and maybe a a thing that the system would have produced itself? And I think that you're right to say that. Um, if not Newt Gingrich, there would all there was always going to be a Newt Gingrich because society was working on producing a Newt Gingrich, if that makes sense, right? There's a line of thinking that has existed in in Western society has been being built built on again and again and again from generation to generation uh, that has been aided by, by capitalism, that has been aided by nationalism, that's been aided by white supremacy and, and a million other things that would produce a figure like this in the same way that someone like Jordan Peterson in this moment has been produced by a history of philosophy and a history of sociology and, and, uh, and, and cultural studies and a million other things, it, both in terms of like being something, being uh, Peterson reacting to those things, and also Peterson coming from some of those legacies. Um, uh, in in Gingrich's case, like in fact, the, the Peterson connection is actually not that far off. Gingrich is another uh, reactionary who who has this like really shaky understanding of nature, both in the lowercase n. This is how animals work, and th therefore this is how people should work. The sort of like. Uh, if you're the lesson I take from giraffes is if you're doing or no, it wasn't giraffes. What was the thing? It was um, uh, alligators. Alligators. If you're doing something right, keep doing it. Or the like the the, uh, <laughs> well, the anecdote about male lions letting the female lions hunt and then steal. And that's just the way it is. Gender. It's just in nature. Um. So like one, shut up. Like you're not an evolutionary biologist. You're not a scientist. You don't understand these things. And also, we are not those makes creatures. Them sound fancy, right? Like he's an extremely like Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, Milo, Newt. Like they they all traffic in. You could listen to a speech and like you could you can see you can see why someone gets tricked into their bullshit because they are very good bullshit artists. When you know a tenth of something, someone who knows, you know, a half of something sounds like a genius. And that's most people. Most people don't know shit about right. the you know, the, like, so for instance, one of the things that Gingrich plays with here and that a lot of reactionary politicians and philosophers and political figures play with is this idea that there was a state of nature that oh, if you go back far enough in human history, there's some true essence of humans that is pre-social. Before we signed the social contract and agreed not to kill each other, things were blank. And for some people, that blank is like we were at a constant state of war and this is like Hobbes and Locke and for others like Rousseau it was everything was great everything was actually really peaceful um, and then things corrupted that and so the point of law for Rousseau is to keep us from from devolving and turning into violence and for people like Hobbes and Locke the point of law is to is to pull us away from our animalistic instincts but there's no state of nature there was no time before society when people do that when someone like Gingrich says oh, we used to be animals once and so rules from the animal kingdom can apply to our lives he's imagining a world in which there were not always already categorizations of people uh, in which some people were oppressed, some people were marginalized, but for as long as there's been language, for as long as there's been society, for as long as we've been able to put ourselves into different groups, 
some people have put their boot on other people's necks. And so this idea that like he wants to uh, he wants to look at the natural world for for a guidance on how we can organize ourselves because back then we, we can look at the original moment to kind of understand the moment now it's all built on and, and this is an entire line of thought again that runs through jordan peterson stuff that runs through a lot of reactionary philosophy is built on nothing like it's a thought experiment that they apply as if it was science and it's complete bullshit. Look into this stuff. Go read some Althusser. Go read some some Latour. Go read Hume. Hume is like a great philosopher because he's someone who is like all about science and all about uh, uh, empirical study, and also was like, no, there was never a time before humans had society. Like humans have society all the time. You don't get to talk about human nature without talking about human society and culture. Also, uh, go read that stuff. Well, Any of that sounds interesting. But it speaks really potently and. This has always been who Gingrich addresses and a lot of the people who sort of followed his footsteps are, is this anxiety of the unmoored uh, white male. And this idea that there's something wrong with society because why don't you feel better? Why don't you feel more powerful? Why don't you get more respect? Uh, why is there so much that you see in the world that you disapprove of and no one gives a shit about your disapproval? It's infuriating. Well, the answer is, you were meant to be more than this. You were meant to be the lion looking after his pride, uh, the king looking after his people. And it's all this, uh, you know, it's all this modern, it's all this modernism and postmodernist bullshit that's taken away your rightful place in the world and has taken us away from a proper understanding of nature, of history, which is driven by great men doing great deeds. And here's the way I'm going to return you to that. I am going to get the indifference of a pluralist society that you feel pressing down on you like a boot on your neck. I'm going to take that put the boot back on your foot and you're going to fucking turn it against everybody who never gave a shit about your opinion. You're and also, that's what you should, you were also a lion once, right? Like, yeah, you could have been, I mean, I guess like, here's the very plain version of the shit I was just saying, which is the myth of the West is that the world used to be lawless and chaotic and we were all at each other's throats because we were basically animals. And then like white dudes from Europe, invented laws and now we're <laughs> chill and that is the myth that people like gingrich and today people like trump apply when when trump is talking about the the caravan coming he is that is the same myth that like oh thankfully we have law and order and so we are going to to corral that caravan that animalistic caravan and turn them into real people and push them away so that you are safe. You don't want the state of nature breaking in. Um, and it is, it's just the fucking, it's the grossest shit. And it's also not new again to Rob's point. There's, there's something I do want to touch on here, uh, which is that they talk about how Gingrich took a few tries to get elected to Congress. Uh, not a natural <laughs> politician is our newt. Um, but it rang a bell for me, which is that, so there, there's this famous political scientist, Richard Fenno, who was for years like one of the most important and well-regarded researchers in congressional studies. And one of the things he really did uh, is he's almost like an academic studs turkle in some ways. Like his whole thing was to go spend time with Congress people and see how they connected to their districts and see how their connections to their districts influenced their voting patterns. So his whole question was like, 
it often people often say they feel disconnected from their government, their congressperson isn't responding to them or doesn't care what they think. Is that really true? And so he does these series of uh, you know profiles and studies trying both to pin down anecdotally but also statistically the deg- the, the degree of connection between what people in the district say and feel and what a what their representative does. And his his response basically was that at least through the you know 60s 70s 80s th- those connections were a little tighter than you might think uh that congress people were were th- were listening pretty hard uh to to what people in the districts were saying but the reason this comes up is one of the people he profiles is the guy who held the seat in Gingrich's district before Gingrich did and what what Fenno ended up charting was over the course of a series of redistrictings, uh, this congressman basically starting to realize that like the rural farmers and the small town people that he'd been representing for years and years and years were starting to get, he was starting to lose those people as his district was reshaped. And more and more like well-to-do Atlanta exurbs and suburbs were being put into his district. And the description of this guy was he was always like a very, uh, I guess, you know, a very good old boy type character in a lot of ways. Just very chatty, very, very affable, very good at sitting around the, uh, you know, the, the, the country diner and all that. And he could never forge a connection with, um, with suburban voters, uh, with these increasingly like Republican and doctrinaire uh, voters who were coming in from the suburbs uh, because... They looked down on him. His whole his whole shtick didn't work with them. Uh, he couldn't connect with them. He didn't really understand them or what their jobs were. And they sure looked at him like he was a goddamn hillbilly. And so he basically ends up getting just kind of gives up at a certain point. He's like, "This isn't my district anymore. This isn't this isn't the Georgia that that I remember." Uh, and that's when Gingrich comes in. And so I think the the other thing that to, to bear in mind here is Gingrich is a creature of redistricting. He is a creature of gerrymandering, and he's a creature of affluent suburbs, not rural voters. Rural voters didn't really buy what Newt was putting down, you know? It's a pompadour. It really, really turned them off. Right, right. And so I think that's the other thing is that, like, the rise of Gingrich, even in its earliest stages, is about, like, structural advantages to electoral maps, and it's about... The difference between where we where we often generalize about, like racist and prejudiced Republican policies being driven and coming from and where they actually tend to reside most happily. What is their actual natural habitat? Is this a good pivot point to talk about the election results? Yeah. Uh, I, I say that because... Yeah, Austin, that's a segue! That was a good segue. <laughs> um, I say this because uh, Lucy, Lucy McBath, uh, who is, was running uh, as a Democrat for what was historically Gingrich's seat, uh, declared victory last night, though though uh, her opponent, uh, Representative Handel, has not has not conceded. Um, we're still in the, the like the moment of post election day, uh, where there's lots of things still up in the air, lots of potential recounts. Cotto is on this call. Cotto, I'm sorry about Florida being Florida. I know Everyone's how this sorry shit goes. About Florida. Yeah, fucking true enough. Um, but I, you know, Patrick, I think you probably were watching us most closely. And I'm curious as, as the person you went out canvassing yesterday, did. actually, yeah, you flipped your district. Flipped. Hell yeah. Flipped Hell yeah. Fuck. High five. Um, yeah. What do we, what do we, what do we make 
What do we make of yesterday? I there, man. I roller coaster of emotions yesterday. Like at a, at a, there was a certain moment. Uh, Austin and I are on a, a WhatsApp uh, together with some some other folks, and there was a moment where <laughs> our true our true political opinions. Um, but even I like the the models were getting weird, and it was starting to look like really dark. Like a 2016, like 8:30 at night. Like oh, it's all slipping away, sort of dark. Where I just had to like put my phone down and like. Uh, walk uh, away from things because I could feel like my mood getting like really sour, like in front of my wife and my and my kid. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. Um, but I don't know. I like uh, today. I feel like pretty good things. But there's a number that I thought was really encouraging. Um, that the, the Democrats uh, seated something like a like a thousand seats over the course of Obama's uh, tenure um, and gained back like 333 of them um, overnight. Um, and it's like, we're crawling out of like a really deep hole, but I think even the losses of like Gillum and potentially, uh, Abrams, although like right now it seems like some of that stuff might go to recount. So like, who the fuck knows? But like, let's just assume they lose by like half a point. Um, and, and even, you know, O'Rourke in, in Texas, like they're all like interesting paths forward. Um, they all were like staunch progressives. They tried to like build coalitions in different ways. Like if Abrams loses, if Abrams loses, uh, that governorship, by a, like half a point like she should she had no fucking business getting that close well, like um and, and so I think there are a lot it, of though. well yeah you you could credibly argue that's that's like even just assume that it's all like taken to be legitimate for for whatever reason and the camp isn't like a total fucking nightmare vampire who, who probably stole the election um th- those are all like staunch progressives that like potentially blazed a path forward that like Yo, if you don't want Joe Biden in 2020, like you, you needed folks like that to to show their alternative paths to build coalitions. And I think the House is really important. Like you know, you look today, uh, you know, Jeff Sessions, you know, getting fired basically, but resigned so that Trump could put in his own crony. It's like, well, the response to that was someone who's going to be uh, chairing the House uh, Ways and Means Committee, saying like, well, we're going to investigate why Jeff Sessions is no longer Attorney General. Like, All right, well, that's like, that's something. So I don't. I'm I, I'm encouraged. Uh, is that even though Florida Florida was the real thing I wanted, I wanted. I was really excited about Gillum, and it seemed like uh, he would have been a really exciting governor down there. But I don't know. I, I came out of it like more encouraged than I felt at like eight o'clock last night. Even if uh, a lot of that encouragement is mostly just the potential paths forward that show building coalitions in parts of the country that the Democrats have just criminally ignored. If Abrams loses, uh, she dragged so many interesting races over the finish line that the Democrats would have lost otherwise. And you can't build a coalition, you can't build an infrastructure if there's no infrastructure. And so... That was part of the thing that I think was a relief for me. We're seeing lots of local measures that were important get passed. Talk about Florida. 1.5 million ex-felons. 1.5 million ex-felons are now going to be One in 10 black men in Florida are about to (laughs) get the right to vote again. That is fucked up. People who've served their time, people who are like, yeah, like that's amazing. It's huge. Um, you look at uh, some some you know judge appointment not appointments uh, some some judges being voted in in certain places like there are a number of ballot measures that were things that I thought things that I didn't have a lot of faith in um, uh, and to see some of those get passed or to see uh, there's uh, so many wins in the house that were not just about um, 
establishment Democrats moving forward, right? It's about it's about a, a new generation of people that often looks younger. It definitely looks blacker and browner, um, and and also looks uh, is is more women. Like there's a lot more women uh, advancing here, uh, and obviously a lot more women actually across both parties. Um, so I don't want to like do this kind of bland. The future is female, like rah rah white feminism. Yeah, thing. yeah, white women. We got a problem uh, but, over there. Yeah, so. white women still. It turns out still are the ones who are voting uh, for for Trump. Uh, aligned uh, Republicans, uh, y'all gotta y'all gotta have some talks, I guess. I don't know. Um, y'all gotta realize that you have skin in the game, honestly. Um, mm -hmm. But the the thing that I do want to emphasize is that you know I, I'm not Nancy Pelosi is not my favorite person in the world. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is not who I would like to see uh, in charge of, of of House Dems. But like the, those other gains are things I can really get get into um, and. I do think that it's exciting to see progressive voices, not just not liberal voices, progressive voices, people who, who are not just center left Dems or, or who at least aren't, you know, in, in terms of American politics, center left, um, leading the, char the charge there and, and lending their uh, power to those other races. And that is how you get the things that actually matter to people in that kind of close to home sense uh, across the line. Because if you don't have a Beto O'Rourke or you don't have a Gillum, those other measures don't pass because you don't have the canvassing for it. You don't have the money for it. You don't have the uh, the, the outreach, the advertisements and all that other stuff. You don't have the energy. You don't have the energy. Um, and so while I'm disappointed about those, and, you know, I, I haven't checked in with the latest on Gillum, but, but it looks like there might be a mandatory recount. I don't know if it's changed in the last couple of hours. Um, but I would love to see that, too. Uh, I would love to see – I'd love to see the – if we're not going to get Cruz, you know, if not, we're not going to get Cruz out, then <laughs> – Give me the Gillum win, please. I mean, there's, but that's, that's such a weird contradiction, right? In Florida, right? Like, were they in order for that uh, ballot measure to pass? It, it couldn't. I think it was. It couldn't be fifty. It had to get over a threshold higher than that. Um, it was either two thirds or sixty or something like that. So it's like, on one hand, it's like, wow, Florida just uh, may have potentially elected like one of the most outwardly racist uh, candidates for governor in Rob DeSantis, and yet just gave back the rights for one point five million ex felons to vote right so it's just it's weird contradictions to hold in your head yeah totally uh the current update by the way on the, the ron desantis uh gillum uh, andrew gillum thing is that currently desantis's lead is 0.62 percent it's gotta get to auto, 0.5 right yeah point if it goes below 0.5 there will be an automatic recount so we'll see also fuck scott walker yo also fuck scott walker get the fuck out of here bed. stop ruining I my name with it not looking good and then I woke up to a text from a friend from Wisconsin saying he down. And then I tried to uh, – <laughs> I just want to share this tweet that um, I shared earlier today uh, in which I, I wrote on Twitter. I said, is it possible to snort a tweet? Because someone shared that irony of ironies – this is from uh, Tortured underscore Verse on Twitter. Scott Walker signed a law preventing second-place finishers from requesting a recount if they lost by more than 1%. Walker lost by 1.2%, which is just, mm, chef's kiss, fuck that guy, union-busting asshole in Wisconsin. What's well, Scott Walker happier. is someone who specifically has sort of haunted American politics for years so now. So slippery. He just almost oh, yeah. survived a recall. Like, I know. Ah. I remember. I remember. Um, well, that's the thing that's so funny. is like we talk about Gingrich in a similar way. You were saying if you were of a certain age, you maybe didn't realize the effect Gingrich had. For whatever like, – I grew up watching – 
like I think I had a teacher in fourth grade who required us to watch ABC's World News Tonight, and okay. somehow for me that spiraled off into also watching like Crossfire on CNN. Oh no! So like I knew who Paul Begala and Tucker Carlson were before <laughs> oh, no. I was in junior high, you know. Um, and so for me, New Gingrich was this huge figure, and like yeah. I did totally. Um, and and you know, I don't think Scott Walker has ever been a New Gingrich in terms of. Um, national politics. He was so close. He was though. so close. He was so close. Then he gave that fucking speech, and everyone realized, like, this is just a vicious fucking dweeb. Yeah, totally, totally. There was this moment when the Republican Party could have gone with with you know Walker uh, over some of the other the other major figures over, over you know a party led by let's say you know McConnell and and um, and Paul, but like this is. We didn't get that, thankfully, and now we finally get him out of the out of the picture in general. I'm sure he'll he'll sneak back in somehow. He'll go to a think tank or he'll go to a think tank. Yeah, something. yeah, yeah. For he'll do like two years making you know way more money than he's even made in the last ten, uh, and then and then pivot that into an appointment someday. A lot of favors to cash in on with uh, Foxconn. Oh my! Um, there's the, go. There, was it the Verge that ran that big piece explaining the Foxconn? So go. Search for the Verge Foxconn. There, if you're unaware of this, which honestly, this probably lost uh, Walker the election. He signed this enormous deal with Foxconn, like you know, big Chinese uh, electronics manufacturer, to build a a big factory in Wisconsin. In which I think Wisconsin is now going to end up paying like between two hundred fifty thousand or a million dollars for like ten thousand jobs um, over the course of the next like forty years. Um, it's 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 unbelievable what was promised, and it was a bad deal if they'd gotten everything Foxconn had promised, and then just the way Foxconn has just like just twisted the knife over. Foxconn and over was again. like, un- "Yeah, we're gonna automate the plant, and <laughs> we're going to take contractors from Indiana and and Illinois." That was basically their, you know, actually the labor markets are a little softer there, so we'll just import our labor from other states and uh, fuck you. Um, um, I, on that note, fucking, I'm um, just briefly, I'm so mad about, about Amazon's HQ2 stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I'm so, dude, like, I'm mad, but I, like, it's so funny. Well, it's funny for you because you're not a neighborhood away from it. They're moving into, like, I'm literally on my, po- like, my address is Long Island City, even though I'm not technically in Long Island City. This is, I, it's going, I guess technically I am in Long Island City, but, like, uh, uh, de facto, I'm not. You know, I'm mm-hmm. not like no one would say where I am is Long Island City. But that is Amazon. So Amazon, for people who don't know, Amazon is earlier this year was when they started. They they very publicly said oh, we're going to set up a second HQ somewhere in the world, and we're kind of auditioning cities. Yeah. And so who wants you to bend these, over backwards to give us tax breaks? To give us tax breaks. To give us property, to give it, and also data is a huge one. Just give us all the data you have about like future projects you're doing and potential, and, you know, what what the traffic patterns are like. We would, you know, we're just Amazon. We just need to know that way we know where to invest our people and not give you new jobs, um, and then totally gentrify neighborhoods that previously had not been totally not that long. Long Island City has been gentrified for a minute, but like the neighborhoods around it have not been, have, have not suffered that much. Um, so yeah, it's just, it sucks. And, and like what they're doing is they're splitting it between basically uh, Northern Virginia, right outside of DC and New York. Um, and uh, it's a, it's going to like ruin. It's good. It's ugh, 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 ugh. I'm pissed about it. I'm too close to it. Literally. I'm too close to it. And so I'm upset about it. Um, and I just think it's frustrating to see, uh, the the leaders of cities that are that 
leaders who are often who position themselves as progressive, who position themselves as pushing the Democratic Party forward, uh, be some of the, the the mayoral leaders in this country who are happy to bend over backwards for a big company like Amazon. Well, and so many of them, in, and so many of them have internalized this logic that human dignity and worth comes from having a job, and so it is better morally, economically, uh, philosophically, it is always better to ensure that someone is employed for, you know, forty to $60,000 a year, even if that requires several hundred thousand dollars in subsidies to create that job, rather than subsidize someone those forty or $50,000 a year off the, you know, state budget or the national budget. And that's going to tie into something we're going to get to uh, a little later in the show, but I think that one of the things that is so frustrating about this is when Amazon comes calling, it's a bit like Foxconn, it is so frustrating to see supposedly progressive places, supposedly, uh, and actually the Democratic Party has a problem with how it administers a lot of cities. It runs like it's strong in cities, but uh, I grew up in Northwest Indiana, like the Democratic Party, you know, on the national level is one thing, frequently like the Democratic machines that exist in cities uh, are completely different. Uh, animals and they compl- and they serve us very different interests, uh, but it is very frustrating to see these local councils and municipalities uh, basically open the vaults for whatever you know company comes calling with the equivalent of you know a <laughs> a mid teens monorail. Um, that's it, it's a deeply frustrating thing, but yeah, overall. Um, there was a minute last night where I was feeling the disp- like I finished streaming. We we're streaming all day, which was a lot of fun, and I'm really grateful that so many people were hanging out with us uh, the entire evening on streams. But I finished up and and turned it over to Kado, and I started checking the news, and it wasn't my best hopes for the uh, for the election. And then things started to break, and where I've come in is um, it feels a little bit like. The nightmare is nowhere near over. The nightmare may last forever, right? But this is at least the moment where you start to realize you're in the nightmare. That's kind of how it feels for me. It's like you realize, like, it's not, this is not who we are. But it's more in the sense that this reality doesn't have to be the be-all and end-all, right? That, like, this can be changed, and it's slow, and it's a long way back, but... um you know, for for a day, uh, the slide was 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 halted. Where we go from here, uh, it re- depends a lot on people like us. Uh, one, just two, uh, two short things. One, I'm gonna be really excited to watch Andrew Cuomo announce that he's gonna be a presidential bid for 2020. He's gonna flop like a motherfucker, and it's not gonna go anywhere. But it's gonna be super funny to watch it watch it play out because it's totally gonna happen. Uh, and two, there's like a small footnote on um, the New Cambridge Peach was that. Uh, there's a, there's a bit where they very briefly mention that one of the more prominent uh, Republicans to come out of that revolution, except on the Senate side, was uh, Mitch McConnell, who like was a big fan of what Gingrich called, um, uh, or I think it was Bill Kristol uh, called uh, principled obstructionism. Um, and whereas like Newt Gingrich was like loud, carried a hammer, and just destroyed everything around him, like I think Mitch McConnell is a complete monster, but I have an enormous amount of respect for his, like, him as a tactician, because he 
knows how to play the game. Respect is a strong word. It's, I mean, he knows Respect how to play. You have to hand it to him. <laughs> I, I wish I, I, I wish I had someone on our side who was willing to right. be his fucking yes. bloodthirst. Yes, fair. Yeah, yeah, that I'm. He's with. fucking raw. He gives no fucks. He will, he will lie to your goddamn face, and then, and then saying he's not going to stab you, and then put the knife around your back. All I'm saying is like, like he, he took the lessons from that and was like, all right, fine. Like I'm just going to accrue that. Whereas Newt accrued power to no means. Mitch McConnell accrued power and then applied that power. Like, I guess what I say is like one of the takeaways from the piece was how long it how long it has taken for any lessons of the changing of the rules of the game to sink in for the Democratic Party and to adjust to those rules and to pretend they continued living in a world of the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s in which you everyone was just nice to each other and things were going to get done. And the, the, the rules of engagement changed, but the Democrats weren't acting as though it did. And and so that's how you get someone like Mitch McConnell, which like that conniving motherfucker, the respect comes for, uh, from a deep ugliness, but also he took the, the the way the rules changed, ran with them, and like we're still, or at least our leaders are still catching up to try and play on the same playing field. I sometimes feel like we were at like a sh- such a strange impasse because, so I look at, I look again at that piece on Gingrich, right? And there are, there are these moments in it in which the f- the way in which the author of that piece or the way in which even you and I will talk about something like McConnell's strength at disregarding decorum, right? Um, and I don't know where we go from here because I, we cannot go back to a world in which we pretend for... So the the piece on Gingrich sets up this, this idea that for a long time... Um, you know, sure, there were moments when there were canings on the on the floor or whatever, right? And and things were vitriolic. But in the in the twentieth century, we had a a kind of political rhetoric um, and an operations or an operating of the government that was disciplined, that was about debate and compromise. And one of the things that we've learned is not simply that debate and compromise in our current moment don't work. But that debate and compromise were always built on a sort of dismissal of the needs and desires of some of your constituents, often those in the margins. That it's super easy to compromise when you are, you know, if you are a, 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 uh, a senator who just doesn't care about your indigenous population or about queer youth in your, in your district or in your state, uh, it's easy to compromise, right? Or maybe you don't care, but you say, I'm going to get the wins where I can get the wins. I'm going to get the wins where I can get the wins. And so what that's going to be about is like middle-class Americans, or maybe that's about shifting uh, uh, some money into a program that maybe has some, I'm not saying there are never wins for those constituencies or for, for those groups, right? I'm not saying that like black Americans have never gotten uh, the backing of, of a senator who, uh, that's helped them. It's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that that previous mode of sort of like, oh, well, we all basically agree that we want to compromise is built on a, a prioritization that now many very active people are not willing to, to, to take. They're not willing to say, okay, but like, 
uh, you know, first we'll focus on middle class people with jobs and then we'll get to, you know, queer youth who have who are homeless. Like, no, like those people are now also for people like me and other young people who are trying to become active in, in the political space. That compromise isn't isn't we're not willing to do it. It's, it, it's a very it's a very tough moment of, of it's like a post structural or postmodernist moment where the the you know, we've kind of seen the, who the Wizard of Oz is. And on one hand, we miss being able to talk to the the beautiful hologram of the Wizard of Oz. We don't want to see the reality that he's like an ugly dude in the back pulling levers, but we can't ever go back to that. We can't ever put the genie back in the bottle and go back to that that pre, to this this brilliant age of compromise. We know now that like there, the real politic of it is true, that the people are just throwing punches and people are just finding the best way to stay in control and to take power. But also for those of us who have who have broad idea, you know, ideas or, or, or really utopian ideas about what the future should hold, it's hard for us sometimes to say like, and that's why we should be as manipulative and cruel as Mitch McConnell, right? There are people on our side who just will never get on board with being a Mitch McConnell. I mean, there are people on our side who don't even like us calling out Mitch McConnell in public. Right. You, we all know that. And so it's like, well, how do we get to a politics, uh, um, not just a politics in terms of our beliefs and our, and our ideas, but a mode of doing the political that is productive going forward outside of some super big reimagining that we will not figure out in the course of a podcast episode. But it's I, all it's a problem. I don't know. Right. I mean, that's, 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 that's where like, it, it, like, it, where do you find that center when it's like, you're the whole responsibility of like finding this new mode is on one side when the other's right. like, fuck it. We're just not actually going totally. to agree to your terms. Well, totally. Well, and I, I don't know. I mean, but with the Democrats, I would say like going back to the Gingrich thing, the entire strategy adopted by Clinton in reaction to this was let's i mean it was the triangulation politics right like i will throw liberal causes under the bus and fuck it this guy hates my guts but i'll work with him on welfare reform i'll even call it welfare reform and that will show what a pragmatist i am and how i don't want to give free handouts and not understanding that that isn't the goal that that fight is the start of a list of demands not the end this is not an end state to settle the question this is opening shots to continue chipping away at bases of support, at punishing classes of people who, like, who one group despises. Uh, and I think one of the real frustrations with the Democratic Party in the wake of the Clinton years, and I'm curious what this sort of new version of the Democratic Party is going to turn out to be, right? My nightmare version is that we have elected a new generation of Obama-style politicians who will they will be more diverse in terms of like who they are their their biographies their backgrounds the ways they relate to constituencies which constituencies they relate closest to but they will also default to this pollyanna-ish idea that there is a fundamentally healthy political system at work that if they just if they just model good enough behavior that the toothpaste can be put back in the tube Right. That if if they just remain open enough to compromising uh, this, these these fights and the stakes can go away. And I think that was Obama's priority for disastrously long. A refusal to acknowledge. Yeah. A refusal to acknowledge uh, who you were dealing with and a refusal to acknowledge the ways in which the policies that a lot of your centrist allies espouse were hurting the people who supported you. And leaving them disappointed and betrayed. Um, I am very curious whether this new generation of Democrats and the leaders that emerge from it 
how they're going to process those lessons uh, because I think the answer to that is very important. And again, this is why, like, this is where it sort of comes back on us a little bit. I have a new congresswoman. She seems fine. Also seems a little centrist. Seems a little... Seems to like ICE more than I would. Seems to be a little cooler with a sensible immigration policy as defined by people who I fucking hate. And I know who hate people like, like me, right? And so I wish her well. But also I'm thinking, I would look forward to pri like helping a primary effort against this person if things don't go the right way in the next two years. And that's how you have to be. Like, vote angry, donate angry, um, hold their feet to the fire. Because I think a lot of people want, the, want to just wake up from the nightmare and pretend it didn't happen. And Well, that's the worry of, like, 2020, right? Is that, like, we'll just... That's, that's the appeal of the Joe Biden, right? It's like, well, that was fine, right? And just, like, wrap yourself around that old nostalgia without actually learning any of the lessons from... Those eight years, in the way that like Republicans like will will be able to someday treat try and treat Trump as like a mirage, like a blip, like if we don't learn any lessons from the eight years of Obama and the ways things went wrong there, then what was the point of that time either? Right. There's like you know it's it's so tough because like I I, we, I haven't spoken about my feelings on Obama and Obama's legacy that much. I mean I think people know that I'm critical of many of his policies. Uh, ranging from from uh, his policies with drone strikes uh, to ways in which he failed to tackle uh, some some major issues with law enforcement in the country um, to just his general belief in the market, right? Uh, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, but I also haven't spoken, I don't know that I've actually spoken that much about like what it felt like in 2008 to be a black man in America and see Obama get elected, especially 2008 Obama where there's just, you're overcome, you're overcome, or I was overcome with a sense of hope and joy and all that stuff. Um, that this possibility space that you rationally know will open at some point, there will be a first black president of America. Seeing it happen was like very moving and important to me. And also it's infuriating to see so much of that movement turn into hire more women drone pilots, you know? Um, uh, which is a meme. I guess it's a hire more women guards is the actual yeah, meme. Yeah. Um, but but the idea that, that you're getting at, Rob, that's like, I think it's super important to talk about identity. I don't think identity is, is reducible to class. It fundamentally isn't. Um, if it were, uh, uh, actions and, and policies that were supposed to help uh, uh, the impoverished would actually have helped more uh, marginalized black and brown folk in this country that hasn't happened. We've seen a lot of policies over the years from private businesses, especially from banks that explicitly target black folks. Like I, I don't think it's reducible in that way. So I do, I'm not going to say like, Oh, we don't need any more identity politics. Fuck off with that. Um, I think these are, these are unique uh, and interconnected problems, problems of race and gender. Uh, same thing with gender. Like I'm not here mm -hmm. saying mm -hmm. that like that we have not had a history of systemic misogyny and, and, and sexism. Like we absolutely have. Um, but it is, so demoralizing to see the thing that you're talking about, which is like the headlines that uncritically say we have more women in pol in in, in uh, politics than ever before, and that's exciting. 
but it isn't the end. And it goes back to that thing that you were just saying, well, which well, is like, actually, there is as much of a diversity of opinion inside of the category of people, woman or black people, as there is any other category of people. And so on one hand, yes, I'm happy to, I am 100% happy to see that number go up. We have to actually like be, I want to get to the point where the status quo is that so that we can then talk about policy and talk about difference because that difference is there and it's a reduce, it's a, it's a reduction of their identity actually to say, to simply say, ah, the year of the woman, more women have succeeded than ever before. You know, like there are women inside of that group who don't want to be categorized with some of the other women they're being categorized with. It is not a, 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 a success of affinity. You know what I mean? It's a success of category and that is not the same thing. I think it is a very frustrating and uh, sinister aspect of liberalism in a lot of ways to co-opt diversity and identities to service old old policies that disadvantage the very groups whose exemplars liberalism co-opts. And that is, I think, a particular particularly salient, salient problem uh, or has been with democratic politics. I am hopeful that this new generation of leaders... Um, provide a little more ideological diversity than we've seen in the democratic party in my lifetime. Uh, so fingers crossed again, I don't expect a lot it all at once, to us, right? I'm, yeah. I don't think any of us expect tomorrow for like, I, the, I don't think in 2020 we're going to see every Democrat uh, be <laughs> a red of the DSA. Yeah. It's not, we're not going to get the red rose, <laughs> the red what rose wave or whatever we're the getting, fuck we're going to call it. It's not a flag on, 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 on your shirt anymore. It's a red rose. It's a red rose. I mean, listen, I would love to live in that world. Even though I have some issues with some of the DSA stuff, I still would love to live in that world more than the world we live in now, but I don't, right. I don't expect it. Like, I don't think my expectations are that high. I understand what it is to be in a purple district or in a purple state. I understand that there at that level there is a degree of compromise in politics that is necessary not necessarily good but but necessary but uh but i would like to but i i would still like to at least see a plurality of positions inside of what we think of as the left-leaning party in this country all right well we will take a little break uh and then we will be back with our last segment and uh i suspect as podcasts continue we may revisit some of these topics 
God. Uh, we're gonna, this is we're what we mean. It can't, it can't stop at voting. You have to remain active politically. That's Rob is just out here canvassing for yeah. Filmstruck. Uh, hey, do you have a minute to talk about Filmstruck? <laughs> Listen, uh, Rob, I don't, I don't appreciate your globalist cinema agenda. I'm good with American film. Thank you very pretty, much. It is pretty heavy on the foreign films. Uh, but uh, so... A Criterion DVD sale uh, hit roughly around the same time, maybe a few days earlier, maybe a few days later, and I was it's all just, connected, you know. Yeah, it's all trying just, to make it's money. All a piece. Uh huh. And I couldn't help myself. I picked up one of my favorite movies that had a new remastered, uh, restored version. Uh, my Man Godfrey, which is a 1936 film uh, directed by uh, Gregory Lacava and starring William Powell and Carol Lombard and. Gail Patrick, and I think it's a fascinating movie. It's one of my favorites. Um, my politics have changed a lot over my life between like when I first saw it and like where I'm at today when I rewatch this movie. And I sort of hit this conclusion that this remains a great movie, but it is also beautiful poison in a lot of ways, and it, it's actually a really troubling movie. Uh, in, Skip, in you know I love well. this movie. This movie is like a brother to me. <laughs> Screwball but... comedies, <laughs> ragamuffins, things of that nature. <laughs> but! So, uh, if you haven't seen this movie, uh, basically the setup, for the, the setup for it is that, and this is unusual for movies of this period, it's comedy that sort of tackles head-on the fact that the country's in the middle of the Great Depression. And where a lot of screwballs tend to focus entirely on well-to-do elites. Yeah, do you want to tell uh, me, can you set up what a screwball comedy is? Because I just use that word, but like I don't know that. It's not a word, it's not a phrase that we use to describe many comedies today. God, yeah, it is a tough, the definition itself is um, very well worth contesting. Uh, I need to get my dad to finish his book on it. Uh, but... No, my dad like has a manuscript on on screwballs that like he's been sitting on because I think he's shy. Uh, but like it's really good <laughs> and informs informs a lot of my reading of this movie. But screwballs are it's a really short lived genre if you're talking about like great screwball comedies. I don't think it survives World War II. Like there are movies that come out afterwards that try to be screwball, but really it's an artifact of the depression. And a couple features of it uh, are that. They tend to reimagine or subvert uh, traditional gender relationships and modes of behavior. Uh, so, like, think of a little bit, but again, like, even, um, like, think about bringing up Baby, if you've ever seen that. Catherine Hepburn plays a well-to-do uh, woman who seems a little flighty. A little like an agent of chaos, but actually, if you slow down and listen, she's actually the quickest witted and most determined character in the film. Like, she is the one person who, from beginning to end, has clear motivations and clear plans of action. And it is only the fact the world can't keep up with her that everything goes to hell in a handbasket. Um, it Happened One Night follows a similar pattern, uh, where again, it's about uh, sort of humbling male ego in a lot of cases and like making the case that. Uh, women are more self-sufficient uh, than than you might think uh, if you're sort of a 1930s chauvinist, right? That it might be time to uh, it might be time to shut up, sit down, and uh, you know let women take charge. 
Um, now, some of these movies do sort of reassert the hierarchy in the end, uh, but for a while, in a sort of Midsummer Night's Dream way, they suspend the rules uh, within the film. The other feature of it is that they tend to be fast-paced and uh, a little bit surreal. Uh, they tend to, they're not, they're not romantic comedies, though romance is like a salient feature of a lot of these films. They are more playing with the absurdity of class and human relationships and conventions. And again, sort of subverting those as well. And that all makes sense in the context of 1930s depression has collapsed a lot of the economic order that's borne up traditional structures. And also it's time political people like 1930s, like nobody knows what the world's going to look like in the forties. Um, so that's kind of the, the backdrop on this, but a lot of these movies focus on glamorous people going to nightclubs, uh, related to this genre is like the Fred Astaire musical, right? Like just good looking, elegant people in designer dresses and suits uh, in gorgeous Hollywood sound stages, art deco everything, uh, providing a pure escape from the reality of the time. My Man Godfrey opens on a Hooverville uh, by the East River uh, underneath the Queensboro Bridge in New York. And it begins on this group of rich assholes descending on the Hooverville in search of a forgotten man for the purposes of a society scavenger hunt. It's a fundraising thing uh, for a pretty empty philanthropic venture, but they need to find a forgotten man. And who they find is William Powell, who in the 1930s and the 40s is just one of those interesting Hollywood leading men. He's not like Cary Grant, handsome and suave. There's just some elegant, there's, there's an elegance and sort of classy reserve to a lot of William Powell characters, but also uh, sort of a charming debauched quality to the man. Uh, so if you've seen the Thin Man movies, uh, like those are William Powell films. They find William Powell and he is, uh, you know, living rough in this Hooverville, in this dump. And they try to get him to be their forgotten man. And first, uh, the, the, the haughty... Uh, daughter Cornelia of this family uh, tries to tries to get him to come along. He's not having it. Throws her in an ash. Well, doesn't actually throw her in an ash ash uh, heap. Uh, he just scares her. Basically, he backs her into a corner and she trips and, and falls in an ash heap. But then there is the flighty sister played by Carol Lombard, who was married to William Powell a few years before this movie, and they remained friends. Uh, who convinces him to come and be her forgotten man so she can win the. Uh, the contest long story short he comes in rich people shit you know yeah and it's it's gross and he knows it's gross and he basically unloads on this uh on on this party uh when he gets there and then uh the daughter irene asks can you buttle and he agrees to become the butler for this family of rich fuck-ups and that is the setup for this movie, uh, which which I sort of put before you, which I think is in some ways like addressing head on the social pressures of the time and beliefs. But also, I think the ways in which it appears transgressive and the ways in which it appears political also mask a really deep conservatism to this movie uh, that is troubling even before you get to its portrayal of, I guess... A romantic pairing 
is that what it's we're calling this? Um, yeah, it's an interesting movie. I, so like, I haven't seen that many screwball comedies of the era. I guess I've seen, I've now seen this, uh, and I'd seen Bringing a Baby. And I'd seen His Girl Friday. Um, those are the ones I think I've. Is there anything else? I don't think I. Ever, I never saw it happen one night. But I, I've seen a lot of other movies from this era. Either going the direction, the Fred Astaire direction, right? The the like pure romantic comedies of the era in which love is a thing to be cherished and held and and obtained after fate uh, both brings you together and keeps you apart. Um, and I, you kind of put that on one side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum, you can put like the Marx Brothers, like the pre-code Marx Brothers movies of this age, in which the Marx Brothers are wrenches being tossed into the the gears of high society, and romance exists sometimes, but mostly so you can have like a goofy song, or or like a, a character actress be very loud and funny for five minutes while Marx, while, while Groucho Marx like insults her. Um, you know, some of those movies also don't hold up in some ways and this felt like it, it fell you know, pretty well in the middle in, in, a, in a way in which instead of having the Marx Brothers style or the, the kind of comic lead the, the lead be the, the center of comedy the center of comedy is this this family of rich folks who are just surreal in in their portrayal of or in their in their day-to-day lives of just like constantly hungover constantly bickering over who gets to have a butler um and and the the focal point in that family is a young woman named irene who just wants to fuck like who just (laughs) that movie is so horny (laughs) it's the horniest movie i've seen from the from this time period who just like is way into this dude right who is just like yo please I'm so into you. Can we please just do this thing? Um, and that is like the center of the comedy of this of this movie is like, oh, he knows better than than to to he's there to be a butler. He's older than her, like trying to keep hands off, and she is like stealing kisses and sneaking into his room and trying to put the pressure on you, know, getting fake engaged. There's an incredible sequence where he has rejected her advances, and she, she is just like the most. Like she is, she is your goth girlfriend. Like she is wandering around her home with like a huge dour expression on her face. At one point, someone asks her if she'd like to eat something. She goes, "What is food?" And it's just like deep in her feelings. <laughs> the answer performative is something sense. you eat, dear. So, yeah, it is. Um, and then eventually, like, you know, gets gets tricks someone else into proposing to her. It's like it's it's one of those movies. Um, and I ended up really finding the kind of quick back and forth comedy. There's a there's a rhythm to comedy of this era that, um, because I grew up watching like the Marx Brothers and 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 classic film, classic Hollywood films with my dad, I have a real fondness for the sort of patter, um, the sort of like the speed of banter that happens here, uh, and that was really appealing to me. But you're right that like underneath it all, it's a movie that is skewering uh, kind of high class society. But at its root is something pretty reactionary about both. For me, it is both about gender roles, right? It's like, oh, this silly woman. She doesn't, she shouldn't be having these feelings. But also, like, the reveal of this movie is, I thought it was going to be the movie where it turns out that the that the the man who'd been driven homeless by the Great Depression has a heart of gold and is the is you know what he knows things he knows things that these rich folks couldn't know because he's lived a real life. But really, <laughs> he went to Harvard. He is like a businessman who like briefly has been down on his luck. Well, uh, and that's how they present. So there's this point in the movie 
where he takes his buddy who knows him from his old life. He takes him to the dump. And he shows him what the forgotten men of this country really look like. And it turns out they're small businessmen. Like, that's basically it. Main Street, like, baby. The, who he introduces, uh, one of the guys he singles out is like, that man used to be a banker. But when the, when the market crashed, he made sure everybody got their money. And he was left with nothing. So now he's here. Damn. American and, hero. Yeah. And so the movie is sort of putting out this message, even from the first, like one of the first exchanges he had with um, one of his fellow residents of that Hooverville is like, hey, what have you, like, what have you been doing today? And the guy was like, I had a really nice racket, but then the cops busted it up. You know, if the cops would just leave an honest working Joe alone, <laughs> we wouldn't need all this relief. Yeah. And everyone's like, yep, definitely. That would, that would solve that the depression. Would Don't just... need a works program. Just need less regulation. And listen, fuck the cops, like no doubt. But that in this moment, the thing that is happening in this movie is... This movie the hates myth- the New Deal. It hates the New Deal. The myth is that it would have worked itself out if only these enterprising, you know, young businessmen could have been left to to fix things themselves. And and I think even maybe more fundamentally than that is like doesn't ever want to engage with the idea of who was actually hurting in the moment of the Great Depression. You know, you, there you never see any families suffering in this movie. Um, it is fully about how the haves have have suddenly briefly become the have-nots. Um, but don't worry, they have it in them. They have, like, the intrinsic uh, human decency to claw their way back out. If only, if only you would give them the room to do so, you know? Uh, it's not about extending a handout to, to you know, subsistence farmers who've been, who are now, like, traveling to, to, to try to fix their lives, right? Like, it is literally just, like, a good-looking white dude, you're going to do all right. You're gonna you're gonna make it back on your feet. Uh, yeah, and that aspect of the movie is really troubling because this is like, holy shit! It's one of the few comedies of the period to really engage with the politics of its moment, and then what it has to say basically is straight out of a Reagan speech, circa 1978, right? Like, uh, so it is frustrating to see that presentation of contemporary issues, but nevertheless. It's fascinating as an insight into a lot of art is also serving a propagandistic purpose. Uh, What messages is Hollywood sending out? I think with a lot of its movies, it's already sending out messages that like, while the upper class is meant to be envied, they're not meant to be resented with a lot of its movies. Uh, I think with My Man Godfrey, that's cranked to 11. It almost adopts this like almost medieval construction of society where, ah, you know, the... Uh, wastrel aristocrats, they might be complete leeches and blights on society, but they make life more colorful. And therefore, we must preserve them, uh, because what would life be without their brand of antics? Uh, on the other hand, the antics are pretty good in this movie. Um, every time that... there There is a character I can't get enough of. Uh, it's this character named Carlo who is the protege of uh, the, 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 the mom in this family, who is probably the spaciest of the bunch. And also, again, there's a lot of like laughing at what might be some serious fucking alcoholism and mental illness in this movie. 
uh, and just putting it down to like, <laughs> you know, so everyone's getting blackout drunk and seeing shit. That's a normal thing. Oh, she sees fairies. And, you know, the, the lead is like, what do you mean? And the, the maid is like, oh, you know, she she's always has hard nights of drinking and she sees the fairies. And then his response is like, oh, I have just the cure for that. And it takes her tomato juice and adds some Worcestershire sauce and like, oh, just it, it'll irritate her and that'll get rid of it and bring her back. Like, OK, we're just here now. Cool. All right. Great. Yeah. Uh, but. This dude, Carla, who's like the protege of this family, protege of what, who knows, like, what does he do? He's theoretically like a practicing, like classical pianist. Uh, but again, not really. And there's this great sequence where um, you catch him practicing and all he's doing is playing Ochachonia. And every word in the song apparently is Ochachonia song in increasingly like depressing uh, keys. And something about this movie's presentation of like the rich and their hobbies and uh, the seriousness with which they take the meaninglessness of their existence is, I think, still works for me and salvages the movie a little bit. Uh, for me and that like even as it's trying to basically be an apologia for this class it can't help but also like kind of speak some scathing things about inherited wealth um but the end of the movie oh you know what that's what it is right it's like with with god or godfrey is his real name right smith is his fake name yeah um he he is he and like the the wealthy to do who are who know him uh the small businessmen from from the from the hooverville like they are self-made men whereas irene and cordelia like they've inherited their wealth and they're squandering it because all they want to do is like surround themselves with hot you know 40 year olds and stay inside all day (laughs) he's a very hot 40 year old that's that's the character he's Uh, he's a 40 year old yeah and uh, and the other part where this movie like Carol Lombard is hysterical in this movie. I think one of the movie's other real problems is that in terms of like uncomfortably intense sexual chemistry, Gail Patrick as Cornelia and Godfrey is like burning up the film strip. It's off the fucking chart. Yeah. It's like, I had to spoil the movie for myself because I was like, Oh, are they going to get together? I need to know. And I just did a search for, for her name. And I was like, Oh fuck, I guess not. Cause it's on like a couple of looks that pass between them. It's like, this is definitely happening. Uh, and then it turns out that Carol Lombard, she's the, she's the lead. Uh, it ends up presenting a really troubling, uh, version of a relationship where, uh, she sort of makes herself into the forever child. Uh, and he may end up, sort of saddled with a deeply unequal partnership, uh, which this is where it departs from a lot of your ideal screwballs. Uh, a lot of great screwballs tend to like posit this idea of men and women as actual partners and equals, at least to some extent in life. And my man Godfrey ends on potentially one of the most unequal relationships like in the genre. Yeah, it's it's rough. It's rough partially because you could see the skeleton of the other version of this in which uh in which he does end up with with Cornelia and in which she like she gives it as as she she both gives it and takes it. You know what I mean? Like that's the that well, is Well, she changes. Right. Right. And that is actually where where 
in the ver- version of this movie I really like, the, the the story ends up focusing, unfortunately. It focuses on this character who, like you said, is presented not just as, like, innocent and young, but in a very childlike manner. Like, as if you're supposed to come away being like, ah, what she needs is a, a strong father figure. You know, like Godfrey, her love interest. And yeah. he, you know. Who at no point, like, indicates that, like, he wants to be the father figure mentor to her at all not even just ends up like he is basically sexually harassed in the submission and that is kind of the way the movie rolls it's weird anyway um i am like i get why you i do get why you enjoyed this a lot and why it has a fun this is my question totally totally. where did you where so where do you end up with this movie because for me like i came to it i loved it early on and like i see its flaws and they bother me more and more but i still love it but you don't have any of that investment. No, this was like a fun ninety minutes. Uh, here's where I came down: was there's a scene in which uh, in which Cornelia tries to plant evidence on Godfrey uh, to try to get him kicked out of the house, and they kind of figure out that's what Cornelia is doing, which is a huge relief for me because I fucking there's some part of my brain that hates that hates it when people uh, plant evidence on other people. No, but like but hates it that 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 particular fictional trope of the audience uh, of like that sort of deceit that pushes the plot forward, which is like, oh, if you just fucking talk to people, you would know, Ugh, I don't like that. But what I really love is when they figured it out, and then Irene uh, is, like, ushering Cornelia out, and she just goes, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I guess she's trying to, like, it's like, you know, um, uh, guiding uh, 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 cattle or something. You know what I mean? Like you're corralling cattle. And she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. But she says it in exactly the cadence of Lil Uzi Vert in Bad and Bougie. And so if you go on my Twitter, you'll find a very good mashup. Cursed uh, video. I spent some good time today. I'm curious, here's did the... the version you see, was it colorized? Yeah, so the version Bummer. on Amazon Prime is colorized. I hate it. It's so Fuck bad. That. Did you, did you at least see the Criterion stills in that article I linked? Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, it's the movie gorgeous. has this luminosity that is totally. just incredible. The, it sucks to see the, the colorized version because it's bad. And like I, all the colorized films I've ever seen from that era, just it's so like flat color, flat crayon-like color. It's bad. Um, also, here's an admission. If you were like, wait, why is Waypoint streaming in the middle of the day on Wednesday afternoon? because I hit the stream button instead of the record button while I was making that mashup video. So oh, I, thought we, I thought we were like streaming this entire. No, 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 no. You're good. <laughs> so for like, but for like three minutes, I was just streaming that clip with bad and bougie <laughs> under it, trying to get the lineup right. Uh, it was good. It was good. It was very good. It was not bad, as some people might suggest. It was good. It was in fact good. We've deleted that that archive, so you can't find it now. But all right. But if you did, you saw some magic. All right. Well, I think we will uh, leave off our Thursday waypoints uh, right there. And we'll be back next Thursday or maybe Friday. Who can say? Who could say? Uh, but until then, our thanks to Too Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. And you can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney, and you can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Patrick, where can people find you? At Patrick Klopik. Austin. At Austin underscore Walker. You can find that great, great video uh, at, <laughs> at that Twitter account. At that Twitter handle. You might also be able to find a video yeah, that, that Natalie just sent me of uh, a giant Fallout 76 statue out on our deck at the Waypoint offices. 
So, that's good. Enjoy that. Well, uh, I hope you'll enjoy us again next Thursday, but until then, do not give in to astonishment. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.